Welcome to Enchanted Torah by Olivia Friedman, a place where I use pop culture, media, and literature to better understand the Bible. I believe the culture of today illuminates the Torah, which is timeless. Tonight we're going to discuss Jon Snow. Now, Jon Snow is one of my favorite characters in the entire Game of Thrones franchise and series. I love the character. He's unfinished in the books, but we're going to trace him through the books and all the way into the rest of the TV show. This is going to contain lots of spoilers. All the episodes have spoilers, but this one has many, so bear that in mind. What I'm going to do is begin by giving you a brief rundown of Jon Snow's life, and then we'll examine certain episodes in his life in more depth so that you can see exactly who he is like in terms of the Bible and prophets and so on. Because tonight, what I'm going to show you is that Jon Snow is like King David. Now, here's the story of Jon Snow. Eddard Stark, who we've discussed before was this man who was in charge of Winterfell. And he was loyal and he was honorable, but he had done one thing. When he was away on his army campaigns, he had bedded a woman named Willa and he brought home his bastard son named John. And he raised John at home and that's why John's surname is Snow and not Stark. So John is there and he has a very difficult upbringing because the woman of the house, Ned's wife, Catelyn, despises him. Every time she looks at him, she sees evidence of her husband being unfaithful to her. And as you can imagine, that's very painful and very upsetting. And she says a lot of different cruel things to him and doesn't want him around. So the plan is for John to go and join the Night's Watch. And the Night's Watch is a group of men who wear black and they are all the way in the north, even further than Winterfell, and they protect and guard the entire country from what's out there. And what they think is out there are these people called the wildlings or the free folk, but actually there's legends of what came before them, the walkers or the white walkers as they're referred to in the show, and people don't necessarily believe the legends, but as will become clear, they should believe the legends. So when people join the Night's Watch, the way it's told to John is it's this incredibly impressive, noble thing to do. And so when he joins, that's what he believes. But in reality, on one hand, it can be perceived as noble. But on the other hand, a lot of people who join are people who pretty much have the choice of being executed or being sent to jail or they join. So you've got this ragtag group of people, many of whom are scoundrels or who have checkered pasts and they're all serving in the Night's Watch. When someone joins the Night's Watch, they swear to father no children 
and to hold no lands and simply to dedicate their lives to the preservation and the good of the realm. So John is there. It's while he's there that all of the other events in Westeros unfold. For example, as we've discussed in previous episodes, his father, Ned Stark, is executed and accused of treason, and there starts to be a battle between all of these different human lords, where all of them are trying to seize power, seize the throne. Now, John, in theory, could decide to abandon his vows and his oaths and try to take power and be a king or take Winterfell for himself. He chooses not to, and he chooses to be loyal to the Night's Watch, which is a difficult decision for him, but that's what he does. However, he becomes close to the wildlings, and we'll explore that more as we go through specific episodes in his life, and he starts to realize that the wildlings are not the true enemy, the White Walkers are. And so there comes a time where he attains this rank of Lord Commander in his garrison. He allows the wildlings to have access to pass through his area people are very upset with him because of that they actually murder him in the show he's resurrected he comes back to life and at that point he decides i've done enough here i've served my watch has ended and now i actually have the right to my own life but even when he officially has the right to his own life in reality he doesn't because he tries to reclaim winterfell to take it back to protect his sister and also to preserve the realm because he's aware of these white walkers that are coming and he's trying to make everyone aware, you know, all of you are so busy vying and fighting for power when there's a much bigger threat and what we need to do is band together against the bigger threat. So he he is involved in various um, attempts to try to get people refocused on the really important things. He becomes involved in various relationships over the course of his life. And one of the relationships that he has is with this woman named Daenerys. And as we'll see, that relationship does not work out well for him, and it's extremely painful for him when it doesn't. Part of the reason that it doesn't is because there's this bombshell that is dropped where it's discovered that Jon Snow is not actually Eddard Stark's son, as he was believed to be. Instead, he's Lyanna Stark's son, and Lyanna was Eddard's sister. And the story with Lyanna was she had been promised to Robert Baratheon, who was the king at the very beginning of all of this, but she had been taken away by Rhaegar Targaryen, and she had been raped and assaulted, and so what Ned had tried to do was to take her back, and that's what Robert Baratheon had also tried to do, but all of that is untrue. In reality, Lyanna had run off with Rhaegar because she loved him, and Jon Snow is their child, born out of their love for one another. He is actually an heir to the Iron Throne. He could, in theory, rule the entire Seven Kingdoms. That's a threat to Daenerys, but Daenerys loves him, so she doesn't execute him. So this is all background, and I just give you this background because I want to refresh your memory, because we're going to be looking tonight at specific episodes in Jon Snow's life and how they compare to King David. Now, you may be wondering, what's the point of this? Why should I bother? So here's what I think the point of this is. 
the visual medium is very different from the written word. To see something on TV, to see it in a movie is just not the same, and I would argue it's often much more powerful. People around the world were invested in the Game of Thrones TV show, and there was a reason for that. The characters were compelling, they were complicated, it wasn't easy to decide if they were good or if they were evil. They were multifaceted, like real people are. And the spectacle was outstanding. You would see dragons burning up an entire army of people with fire. You would see a man who loves a woman forced into this very difficult position trying to figure out what to do. Is there a way to persuade this woman to act in the good of the realm? Or is it truly the only option at this point might be to kill her and to suffer the consequences? And seeing all those emotions play out on screen, seeing a person who has the ability to be racked by guilt and pain, but who also can be noble and loyal, and whose own nobility and loyalty can actually trip him up, these are things that move people. People are moved by these portrayals. And that's one of the reasons that I love Jon Snow, because I think that Jon Snow is a very moving character, and he's also a character who endures a lot of pain all throughout his life, all throughout his story, and there is no clear happy resolution for him. And in those ways, if you watched Game of Thrones and you resonated with this character and you felt for him, I think that that can inform your experience of reading about and understanding King David and his life. So let's start with the very beginning. When John grows up, he believes himself to be a bastard boy, an illegitimate child, and he's treated badly by the rest of his family because of it. I already mentioned he's treated badly by the woman who his supposed father is married to, Catelyn Stark. He's also treated badly by his sister, Sansa Stark, who's cruel to him. Now, when it comes to King David, if you look at the scene where the prophet Samuel is sent to anoint one of the children of Jesse, what you see is that in the first book of Samuel, chapter 16, verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are here all your children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest and behold, he keeps the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and fetch him for we will not sit down till he comes here. Now here's what's bizarre about this. Samuel has been sent to anoint the new king of Israel. Even though Saul is still king, he's secretly anointing Saul's successor. And when he shows up, he at first sees this tall, handsome, regal man called Eliav, and that's who he believes to be the true king. But God tells him, no, no, no. The way that you see and the way that I see are not the same. You can only see the outside, but I can see deep into the heart of the individual. And I know that that's not the right man. And so all of Jesse's sons are passed before Samuel, but none of them are right. Now, if you were Jesse, and if you had been told one of your sons was about to be king, then you would clearly assemble all of your sons. But Jesse doesn't. David is out with the sheep. He's the youngest one. And Jesse doesn't volunteer him. Samuel has to ask, are these all your children? So the commentaries, and specifically something called the Midrash, picks up on this, on this Cinderella story, and says there is something off here. And the Midrash is, is uh, really the original commentary to the Tanakh. 
they there are different midrashim that come from different time periods and different ages but they are almost always dealing with well there's different types but this kind deals with these kinds of issues or ambiguities in the text where there must be more there must be a backstory and so according to the midrash here there is in fact a backstory and that backstory you can see it in psalm 69 in psalm 69 and this psalm is allegedly written by David. Uh, that's a whole different question, the authorship of the book of Psalms. So the book of Psalms is attributed to David, but even within the Jewish tradition, there's discussion of what that means. And so some say, yes, David wrote them all, but others say, no, no, David wrote some, but some were written by Adam and some were written by Moses, but it was called on David's name because he's the one who compiles them or he's the main author He's the lyricist, the harpist. And then there are some who say, well, David wrote some, but actually people who are after him wrote some too, and it was compiled later. But for purposes of discussion right here, um, the book of Psalms is, is attributed to David. And in Psalm 69, we see, Save me, O God, for the waters threaten to engulf me. I'm wearied by my calling out. My throat is dry. I've lost hope waiting. More numerous than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without reason. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Out of envy for your house, they ravaged me, the disgraces of those who revile me. Those who sit by the gate talk about me. I am the taunt of drunkards. So what is this about? Right, This psalm is describing the life according to Chabad.org. Chabad is an organization which is affiliated with the Lubavitch movement of Judaism, and they have done a really good job of taking a lot of these midrashim that are originally written in Hebrew and writing them up in English so that modern audiences can read them and appreciate them. And so Chabad explains that this psalm describes the life of a poor, despised, and lowly individual who lacks even a single friend to comfort him. It's the voice of a tormented soul who has experienced untold humiliation and disgrace, through no apparent cause of his own, he's surrounded by enemies who wish to cut him down. Even his own brothers are strangers to him, ravaging and reviling him. Amazingly, this is the voice of the mighty King David. So how can this be? So the explanation is that David was born to the illustrious family of Jesse, who served as a head of the Supreme Court of Torah law and was a distinguished leader. However, when David was born... The prominent family greeted his birth with derision and contempt. He wasn't permitted to eat with the rest of his family, but was assigned to a separate table in the corner. He was given the task of shepherd because they hoped that a wild beast would come and kill him while he was performing his duties. And for this reason, he was sent to pasture in dangerous areas full of lions and bears. The only person who knew and who stood up for David throughout all of this was King David's mother, Nitzavet Bat Adael. So what happened here? You have to go back to the fact that Jesse was the grandson of Boaz and Ruth, who feature in the book of Ruth. And so here's the thing. Moabites are not permitted to convert in Judaism, but specifically it's Moabite men, right? So a Moabite woman like Ruth would be permitted to convert. However, during Ruth's lifetime, many individuals were doubtful about the legitimacy of her marriage to Boaz. So... Later on, Jesse has, a, has what we would call a midlife crisis. He begins to worry whether his status really is questionable, whether the conversion really isn't correct. 
And so what he decides is to separate from his wife, no longer engaging in marital relations. And he longs for a child whose ancestry would be unquestionable, so he plans to be with his Canaanite maidservant, saying, I'll free you conditionally. If my status as a Jew is legitimate, then you're freed as a proper Jewish convert to marry me. If my status is not, and I have the legal status of a Moabite convert who can't marry an Israelite, I'm giving you your freedom. But as a Canaanite maidservant, you are allowed to marry a Moabite convert. Now, the maidservant, though, was loyal to her mistress, Nitzavet, and so what she decided to do is create a situation in which Nitzavet herself would go and be with Jesse, but she would pretend that she was, in fact, the maidservant. So, Nitzavet is with Jesse. She becomes pregnant. When her pregnancy becomes obvious, her sons want to kill their apparently adulterous mother and the illegitimate fetus that she carries, Nitzavet didn't want to embarrass her husband by revealing the truth of what had occurred. And she chooses a vow of silence. Jesse has compassion for her and says, you know, don't kill her, but the child that's born to her can be treated as a lowly and despised servant and everyone will realize his status is questionable and he'll be considered an illegitimate child. This is in fact exactly what happens. And from all of this comes King David. Now, the reason that that's incredible is because this is a story of a child who's literally an illegitimate child, a bastard, the way that it plays out in the Midrash, and then he attains this incredible greatness of rising to the rank of being a king, king over all of Israel, King David, who was promised that he'll have a dynasty that will always continue, that will never be taken from him, unlike King Saul. And this is the exact story arc that Jon Snow goes on in that John originally is a bastard child and nobody thinks much of him. And by the time we're done with his story arc in Game of Thrones, it becomes clear he's actually a Targaryen and he has equal right, if not better right, than Daenerys to sit on the Iron Throne. So now let's continue with John and how he joins the Night's Watch. And like I mentioned before, it's this motley crew Similarly with David, even though David is anointed as king, he has a very difficult time becoming one. He has to go back and forth and flee from King Saul. And so he has this ragtag group of men that he controls. And you see that in I Samuel 22 too. Everyone that was in distress, everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him, David. And he became captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Similarly, although not right away, John rises through the ranks to become the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, and so too David becomes the commander of this group of men. So both of them have these people who they surround themselves with who would not be considered the most savory characters, but they are in charge of them and they're able to control them. They also have scenes where they have to deal with complicated circumstances and they have to resort to disguising themselves or their loyalties. So when it comes to Jon Snow, he is out on an intelligence mission and it becomes clear that he's going to fall into the hands of the wildlings. And at that time, he has this person in charge of him, Corin Halfhand, who tells him, you need to do whatever you need to do in order to survive out here and then bring back the intelligence and the information to the Night's Watch. 
And so he has to pretend to betray his lord, to betray Corrin Halfhand, and pretend to betray the Night's Watch as well, so that he can survive. And so this is a quote. Rattleshirt's bone armor clattered loudly as he laughed, then kill the half-hand bastard, as if he could, said Corrin, turn snow and die. And then Corrin's sword was coming at him, and somehow Longclaw, long which is the name of the sword, leapt upward to block. The force of impact almost knocked the bastard blade from John's hand and sent him staggering backward. You must not balk whatever is asked of you. He shifted to a two-hand grip quick enough to deliver a stroke of his own, but the big ranger brushed it aside with contemptuous ease. Back and forth they went, black cloaks swirling, the youth's quickness against the savage strength of Corrin's left-hand cuts. The half-hand's longsword seemed to be everywhere at once, raining down from one side and then the other, driving him where he would, keeping him off balance. Already he could feel his arms growing numb. Even when ghost's teeth closed savagely around the ranger's calf, somehow Corrin kept his feet. But in that instant, as he twisted, the opening was there. John planted and pivoted, the ranger was leaning away, and for an instant it seemed that John's slash had not touched him. Then a string of red tears appeared across the big man's throat, bright as a ruby necklace, and the blood gushed out of him, and Corrin half-hand fell. Similarly with David, David has to run away from King Saul, and in his running away, he ends up having to take refuge in a Philistine court. And when he's in the Philistine court, he fakes madness so that people won't associate him with the David who actually killed one of the most famous Philistines, which is Goliath. And so it says in I Samuel chapter 21, verse 14, he changed his demeanor before them. He feigned himself mad in their hands. He scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let the spittle fall down his beard. And Achish said, oh, when you see a man that is mad, wherefore do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? So that's part one. But then much later on, David has to take refuge in the Philistine lands again, and this time what he decides to do is he decides to pretend to be a traitor. So in I Samuel chapter 27, David said in his heart, I shall now be swept away one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape into the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in all the borders of Israel, so shall I escape out of his hand. David arose and passed over, he and the 600 men that were with him, to Achish the son of Moach, king of Gath. David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, even David with his two wives. And so David and Achish have all these doings, and David pretends to make raids on Judah and the Israelites, and so he's pretending that he's completely betrayed his people and his nation, but in reality, he's actually making raids upon the Geshurites and the Gizrites and the Amalekites. So he's playing a pretty dangerous game because he's pretending to be loyal to the Philistines and to Achish. He's pretending to betray his roots, his origins, his nation. But in reality, that's not what he's doing. And later on, there's actually a scene in which David wants to go to war or pretends to want to go to war against Saul and the rest of Israel. And it's the other Philistine lords who don't trust him and who say, no, no, he can't come with us, which is actually correct because it seems likely, given the way that David is double-crossing them, 
that he would have turned against them. But that scene, right, both of these men are in these situations where they need to pretend in order to save their own lives and in order to um, stay loyal to the people that they actually care about. John to the Night's Watch and David to his uh, people, to his nation. Now, one of the things that also happens when John is with the wildlings is he breaks his vows. So he was a man of the Night's Watch. He had taken a vow. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. He had said the words before the weirwood, before his father's gods. He could not unsay them. One of the things he says is, I shall father no children, I shall take no wife, which pretty much equates to a vow of celibacy. When John is taken and he's living with the wildlings, there's this woman called Egrit. She's a redhead, and she's not actually particularly beautiful in the books, in the show she is. And he comes to care for her. So he breaks his vows, he sleeps with her, he has a relationship with her, but it can't last because in real life he's loyal to the Night's Watch. And so eventually he goes back to the Night's Watch and there comes a time when he greet and her band come and are part of an attack. He has her in his sights. He could kill her, but he doesn't and someone else kills her instead. So he's cradling her body with the arrow protruding from it, and you can see his anguish that it's come to this. So his breaking of vows ends up leading to her death. It's a very sad, sad scene. Similarly with David, and although this is out of order in terms of the chronological orders of where I'm going with everything, it matches up in terms of the breaking of vows. Probably one of the most famous scenes is David with Bathsheba. And when David is with Bathsheba, what happened there is Bathsheba is purifying herself from after her menstrual period. She's on the roof. She's bathing. David sees her. He summons her and he sleeps with her. But the problem is that she's the wife of Uriah. Now there's different ways to understand this. There was a tradition at that time period that when men went out to war, they would write writs of divorce for their wives so that just in case they never came back from battle or their body was never found, that conditional divorce could take effect and the wife would not be chained to that man forever, you know, not knowing what happened to him, unable to remarry. So it's possible that in this scene with David and Bathsheba, she would have been officially not committing adultery, but either way, even if you could say that by the letter of the law she wasn't or he wasn't, the spirit of the law clearly demonstrates that they're doing something that's incorrect. And you see that because later on the prophet Nathan is sent to upbraid them and to rebuke uh, David specifically and gives a whole analogy of a rich man who had an entire flock of sheep and who takes the poor man's one little ewe lamb. Anyway, due to what happens in terms of the night with Bathsheba, they conceive a child. And to hide the existence of the child, first David tries to make it that Uriah can come home and sleep with his wife, which doesn't work out. And then he organizes that Uriah be sent into the thick of the battle. Uriah dies there. And so that way Bathsheba won't be exposed. 
but that child that is conceived through their night together dies and it's clear that that child dies because of the breaking of of the law of, of the sin that he commits so in both scenarios it's not just about the breaking of the vow it's about the anguish that follows because of the consequences thereof when it comes to john he breaks his vow of celibacy with egret because he truly does care for her and love her he ends up having to watch her die in his arms with David, he breaks his laws, you know, the laws permit, pertaining to proper conduct. With Bathsheba, they have this child, and the child becomes very ill. He's very distressed. The child dies. John, who you would think, given how charismatic a leader he is and how much his men of the Night's Watch trust him, ends up in this terrible situation where the men are not happy with him because he's willing to let the wildlings march through Castle Black as they seek shelter because the White Walkers are coming. These men mutiny against him and they murder him. Similarly, with David, in I Samuel chapter 30, what's happened is that Siklag, which was the place where David and his men had been staying and living, had been raided by the Amalekites and burned by fire, and the Amalekites had taken as captive the women that were therein, and they had carried them off. The wives, the sons, and the daughters were all captives. And David was obviously distressed, but here's the important thing. In chapter 30, verse 6, it states, the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people were grieved, every man for his son and for his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So these men are so angry with him and with the fact that they perceive this as being a betrayal that they want to stone him. Now in the end, they don't. So it's not a perfect analogy because John actually does get murdered by his men and David doesn't. It's just that they want to stone him. But there is that parallel of people that that you trust, people that you've led, people that you've commanded, still having the ability to turn upon you because they're angry with you due to a decision that you've made. Both David and John have a strong sense of duty, whether it's duty to God, duty to the realm, duty to family, and they do have this loyalty as well although they're only loyal to certain people. So for John, he's loyal to his entire family, the Stark family. He has this little brother named Rickon. And what happens is that this other man called Roose Bolton ends up having Rickon and challenges John and says, you know, if you want him, you'd better come out to fight me. And Sansa, who's available at that place as well, she's in Winterfell with John tells him this is a bad idea, you don't have the men, you don't have the people that you need. But John doesn't care. John goes ahead anyway because he just can't allow this to happen. He can't allow this boy to simply die. Similarly with David, Saul is David's adoptive father. He effectively takes him in, takes him under his wing, but he has these periods where he becomes very zealous and upset and afraid, correctly so, that David will take the throne not only from him but from his son Jonathan. 
And there's all these scenes and opportunities and moments where David could kill Saul, but he just won't kill him. He won't. He has that loyalty to the family, loyalty that is stronger than his good sense. And then possibly one of the most impactful parallel scenes. After a lot of events occur, there comes a point where John has loved again, right? He had had that relationship with Egret, but now he's loved again, and he has this relationship with Daenerys. And Daenerys is a Targaryen. She's beautiful. She crossed the sea in order to come to Westeros, and now she's going to march on King's Landing, which is where Cersei Lannister has enthroned herself as queen, and Daenerys is going to take back King's Landing. And her advisors, which include Tyrion and include Jon, tell her, you're not here to be queen of the ashes, right? You're here to take back King's Landing, but the people who live there are just people. They're innocent. They have nothing to do with anything. And Daenerys claims that that's what she's going to do, but in reality, that's not what she does. There's this huge betrayal when she takes her dragons and she burns down King's Landing. Little children and people who were innocent all die in her taking the castle. And not just the castle, the entire area. And Tyrion speaks to John. And remember, John loves Daenerys. He's pledged himself to Daenerys. He says, You are my queen, I'll follow you. And he says, Tyrion says, Everywhere she goes, evil men die, and we cheer her for it. And she grows more powerful and more sure that she is good and right. She believes her destiny is to build a better world for everyone. If you believed that, if you truly believed it, wouldn't you kill whoever stood between you and paradise? I know you love her. I love her too. Not as successfully as you. But I believed in her with all my heart. Love is more powerful than reason. And at that moment, John says in this choked, hoarse voice, love is the death of duty. And Tyrion says, sometimes duty is the death of love. So John goes to confront Daenerys, and he's still hoping that there might be some other option, that he's not called upon to have to protect the realm, which is what he sees as his true calling, against her. And he pleads with her. And she says to him, We can't hide behind small mercies. The world we need won't be built by men loyal to the world we have. And John says, The world we need is a world of mercy. It has to be. And Daenerys says, And it will be. It's not easy to see something that's never been before. A good world. And John asks, How do you know? How do you know it'll be good? And Daenerys says, Because I know what is good, and so do you. John shakes his head. I don't. You do. You've always known. John says, what about everyone else? All the other people who think they know what's good. Daenerys says, they don't get to choose. Be with me. Build the new world with me. And at this point, John realizes that Daenerys cannot be reasoned with. He's not going to be able to persuade her that her fealty to her vision is wrong. And as he kisses her, he slides the dagger home and he kills her. And it just absolutely 
breaks him up inside. It it he's destroyed after this moment because he loved this woman, he admired this woman, he allied with this woman. And when it came down to it, she was not the person he wanted her to be, and she wasn't capable of remorse or repentance or becoming that person. And so he ends up having to kill her, and it just, it kills him. Similarly with David. David doesn't have that kind of intense love and relationship with his wives, but he does have it with his son, Absalom. And Absalom revolts against his father, against David, and he has cause to do so. And so David is fleeing from him. And Absalom is making clear that he is absolutely committed to this. He takes David's concubines and he sleeps with them on a rooftop so that everyone in Israel can see that he is truly taking control. And he is committed to this path. And he seems to be chasing down his father and his warriors. You don't know what will happen. It seems plausible, like... He may not want to harm or hurt or kill his father, but that seems to be the direction that it might be going. And so David has a general named Job, or Joab. We, in Hebrew, we say Yoav. And that general is very committed to defending David and making sure that David will be able to survive. So we get to this heartbreaking very upsetting scene and it's the scene that has to do with what should happen to Absalom so David commands Yoav and his men and he says deal gently for my sake with the young man with Absalom and all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom the people go out to the field The people were smitten there. There was a slaughter that day of 20,000 men. The battle was spread over the face of the country. The forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Absalom comes and someone tells Yoav. And Yoav says, well, why didn't you kill him if you saw him? And the man says, even if I would get a thousand pieces of silver in my hands, I wouldn't put forth my hand against the king's son because the king said, don't touch the young man Absalom. So Yoav takes three darts in his hand and he thrusts them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive. And the 10 men that bore Yoav's armor came about and smote Absalom and slew him. So Yoav just decides not to listen to the king. It's not exactly the same, of course, because it's not David himself who commits the murder. But if you look at David's reaction, that same reaction of being utterly destroyed occurs. The beginning of the second chapter, the second book of Samuel, chapter 19, the king was much moved. He went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept and he said, my son, Absalom, My son, my son, Absalom, would I had died for you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And Yoav was told the king weeps and mourns for Absalom. And Yoav comes and sees that the king has covered his face and he's crying out, my son, Absalom. And Yoav says, 
you're shaming this day the faces of all your servants and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines because you love those that hate you and you hate those that love you. You have declared this day that the princes and the servants are not important to you because now I see that if Absalom had lived and all the rest of us had died this day, it would have pleased you. So you need to get up and go tell the people that what they did was right because no one is going to stay with you or be loyal to you otherwise. So Yoav speaks truth to David and David does get up. But that doesn't mean that David gets over it. He gets up, but he doesn't get over it. This destroys him, this experience of having this son that he loved and admired and felt for and having his son cut down and destroyed through him, not through his order, but through him. The last thing that we see is that despite the fact that Jon Snow is a great warrior, very good at killing, he doesn't enjoy it and he doesn't want it. And when the option is presented that he could potentially rule over the Seven Kingdoms, he doesn't want it. All that he wants is to leave. And the last scene that you see is he's going with the wildlings back into the snow and the ice away to live with them. Similarly with David, David has this desire to build the Beit HaMikdash, the temple for God. He very much wants to do it. But if you look at the book of Chronicles, chapter 22, verses 6 through 10, you see that it says, The word of the Lord came to me, me meaning David, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build a house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies round about. His name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. So there's this marked contrast in both John's life and David's life between the life they want to be leading and the life they actually get to lead. In John's case, he has no desire to be a killer, to be a warrior, to be involved in intrigues in terms of thrones and kings. He would be happy to live quietly, and that's what happens in the end. He goes off and just retires to the north It's just that during most of his life, he wasn't given that option. And similarly with David, if David could just give the throne to Absalom and be done, perhaps he would. He can't, though, because it's a slaughter, right? There's And also Absalom has decided to take the concubines, and and Absalom claims he's going to have a just and a good realm, Maybe he would, but maybe he wouldn't, right? If he's able to revolt against his own father and seize power, does that bode well for justice later on? Maybe yes, maybe no. What I hope you see is that both of these men go through incredibly difficult periods in their lives. It's not easy to be them. You could look at them on screen and think, oh, Jon Snow so handsome, so grand, what a wonderful, fierce warrior. And you could say the same about David. 
David is charming. He's ruddy. Some say red-haired. Beautiful eyes. His legacy lives on. Little children everywhere will sing and dance and think about King David. And each of these men leave these intense, impressive legacies, but the road to get there is absolutely strewn with sorrow. It's littered with loss. Bearing that in mind, looking at Jon Snow and seeing the pain that he experiences, seeing the pain that King David experienced, can give us far more insight into the difficulties and the challenges that these men faced.